Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and it's been our great pleasure to offer you our diverse programs of classical music, which include commentary, panel discussions, and interviews, all free of charge for more than five years. We are delighted with the huge response to our programs and are proud of the fact that ClassicalPodcast.com is the most listened to website of its kind in the world. If you've enjoyed our programs and would like to have them continue as a free service, please consider supporting the website by making a contribution. Donations are made through PayPal on our website homepage, classicalpodcasts.com. We encourage you to make a monthly contribution if you can. All revenues from our donations will be used to defray the expenses of the website. Classicalpodcast.com, Inc. is a non-profit organization, and all donations are tax-deductible under applicable U.S. tax laws. We thank you for listening to our programs, hope you continue to do so, and for your generous support of ClassicalPodcast.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of Interpreting Classical Music. I'm Lou Smoley, and I'm happy to have with me my regular panelists, Dennis Rooney and Sedge Clark, uh, and we are going to continue with uh, this first part of a two-part program on uh, noted and imp- what we feel to be important conductors uh, from the past. Uh, in our, in the case of those we choose, we generally choose them because, for one reason or another, uh, the name either is not as familiar as it should be because of the passage of time. Uh, uh, or it is familiar, but as in the case of this conductor we're featuring today, uh, only recently did recordings uh, of this um, conductor come out uh, to give us really an idea of what this very interesting, uh, very romantic uh, conductor uh, was about. Uh, and I'm speaking of Willem Mengelberg. Uh, the Dutch conductor of the Concertgebouw of Amsterdam. And I'm going to have uh, our historian, uh, Dennis Rooney, uh, give us some background. By default, strictly. (laughs) Well, Mengelberg was born in 1871 and died in 1951. He was the second of only six music directors to date at the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam. And he was, of course hugely influential in that orchestra's development, and he also was a hugely influential conductor in the other posts that he held. He didn't hold that many. He was music director in Amsterdam from 1895 to 1945. That's a tenure that has rarely, if uh, ever, been equaled. Only, I think, Yevgeny Mravinsky in Leningrad uh, exceed or met that uh, half a century. Anyway, he began in 1895 as the second music director following the founder of the orchestra, a man named Willem Kess. And he not only built this remarkable orchestra, but became known for his path-breaking programming. It was he who really brought Gustav Mahler to attention outside of the Austro-Hungarian 
sphere, uh, enlarging the audience for it. Mahler, whom he met in 1902, uh, began to make annual visits to Amsterdam to try out his pieces. One of the reasons that he liked to do that was because of the beautiful acoustics of the Concertgebouw, which is considered one of the world's great concert halls. We're going to have a chance to listen to its unique acoustics on many of the uh, recorded excerpts we're going to be listening to today. Mengelberg was born of German parents in Utrecht. He always had a deep, abiding loyalty to German culture and German values, and that got him into trouble, of course, with the Dutch uh, during World War II when the Germans invaded and occupied the country. He didn't complain, he never protested, and when at the end of the war scores were going to be settled, uh, he was one of the ones who got caught in that particular whirlwind. For a while, his recordings were not readily available, but quite frankly, they were rarely not available all the time since probably, I'd say, uh, the late 20s. Uh, and then, of course, with the arrival of Compact Disc, this is when there was a burgeoning of reissues, some of them dreadful, some of them excellent. And uh, we haven't really uh, included any dreadful ones today, but we, we want to give you a cross-section because we have a number of sources for the recordings we're going to listen to. And uh, the, uh, the idea is to just give you as wide an introduction to the uniqueness of Mengelberg as an interpreter. He was not what we'd call a shrinking violet, an aggressive interpreter. In fact, he was described by one writer... He believed that the significant aspect of the conductor's role was to impart a personal interpretation to a piece of music. The performer must help the creator, he said. He also said that faithfulness to the notes is a recent invention. And in that he was certainly uh, uh, in keeping with what Wagner believed had to be done to conduct music. I, I just interrupt there for a moment because I think that that uh, it's important to put that in even greater historical uh, uh, significance. Uh, embellishment, even, of the printed notes was a standard thing, going back probably during the Middle Ages, uh, when they did begin to actually print music, mostly to be sung. Uh, and uh, it's worn out because I, I, one could conjure up many reasons for it. Maybe it's that absolutist scientific sensibility that, that has grown up since the, the, the uh, Enlightenment era, uh, that everything has to be concrete, uh, or it's too much put to individual orientation. But it was the individual orientation that made it uh, so glorious. Uh, and so all the way up through, uh, say, the uh, Del Canto era, uh, when a lot of extrapolation uh, was not uh, printed into the score by the composer, sometimes it was. Cadenzas certainly were, but then again, some of them weren't, uh, and, and so on. Uh, and that I just wanted to make that point that uh, uh, this, this notion that a Mengelberg, for example, uh, was in the forefront of developing the idea of, of, of ex expressive 
well, uh, extrapolation, if you will, uh, is far from true. And he got a bad rap, of course, from the people like Toscanini, whose motto was come scritto, just like it's written. And that, of course, was not anything Mengelberg believed in or ever did. He freely made changes in instrumentation, dynamics. He would make cuts wherever he felt they would benefit the piece. As did Toscanini. That's true. But cuts were a standard Mm -hmm. way to get a piece performed, uh, particularly when you had to gauge just how good your forces actually were to get through from the beginning to the end. Uh, And so what we hear in these recordings is perhaps the end of a tradition, and yet it's in some ways the summation of the tradition, because, of course, this is a conductor with a great orchestra, one of the incontestably great orchestras of the world, as they developed particularly in the 20th century. Dennis, I'm assuming that there were no recordings by Kess. No. So, therefore, we're judging how absolutely fabulous the sound of this orchestra is by what Mengelberg made of it, right? Quite right, and as a matter of fact, no, no recordings of the orchestra were made, until uh, Mengelberg had already spent 25 years, probably just a few more, uh, as music director. So the orchestra was already certainly uh, his creature, if you will. He had molded it, disciplined it, chose the players for a long enough time for a real corporate sense of uh, uh, collegiality. They knew, they knew what to expect from one another. And, and this is something that everyone should listen for because these these recordings the sound of this orchestra is just glorious the warmth this the the uh, virtuosity of it uh, clearly then this was Mengelberg's work and one of the things you'll hear that's absolutely characteristic of all of his concertgebouw recordings is the quality of the trombones uh, they are not like any trombones you will hear from any other orchestra. Not their different instruments, but just he asked them to play in a certain way, and the acoustic properties of the room reinforced those qualities. So on some of the things that are coming up, you will hear that very characteristically. Now I want to say just a couple of words about uh, two very important terms uh, that um, are not as much in vogue as they were, say, in the 19th century or in Mengelberg's early era, um, because, again, conducting has kind of s- stuck to, to uh, what, what is considered uh, the surface aspects of music, the, the notes, the directions, and so on, Pre- presumably. Of course, that's challengeable, too, because no performance is exactly the same, no matter how uh, a conductor tries to to uh, avoid doing anything else than playing the notes and and somehow satisfying uh, the composer's directions. The two words I'm talking about, you'll hear, I think, during our comments. Uh, And they may strike you when you hear them. Um, Not as words, but as actual playing technique. As unusual and possibly even against your own sensibilities. Uh, First is the term portamento, uh, which is a, a term uh, very often designated in the musical symbolism by a straight line between two notes, 
rather than a curved line. But that's not important. What's important is what you hear. And what you're supposed to hear is a slide between one note and another passing through intermediate tones, but not distinguishably so, so that the tones kind of almost meld into each other during the slide. That's as opposed to another term called glissando, which is also kind of a slide. Uh, we think of it in the piano or in the harp, but there the notes are distinguishable between the initial part of the glissando and its, its goal. Uh, and they're rapidly played uh, within the time sequence. But the, port, the important thing here is that portamento, particularly in the winds but mostly audible in the strings, uh, is a, a term that uh, <laughs> has become, uh, in a sense, uh, anathema uh, to modern scholars uh, over the, a lot of the 20th century, uh, especially because it's not necessarily marked as such uh, and became more than just uh, a symbol, but a practice, uh, a, a common custom. I think Dennis wanted to speak uh, the, to that. Uh, the key, actually, to understanding portamento is the word itself, to carry. And in a day when string players did not vibrate steadily the way they are all trained and do today. Portamento was a way of carrying a note that moved in steps from one note to, from one pitch to another, uh, and it, it maintained intonation more reliably than simply trying to play each individual note. Then it became a creature of a certain kind of uh, change in taste that said that sliding was bad and that playing each distinct note was good. Uh, and, of course, this flew in the face of practice going back to the 18th century. It's simply a way of articulating uh, the phrase. And without portamento, you can find that it's rather bare and unexpressive. And with portamento, if it's overdone, you can find that it's excessive. The trick is as with all good musicians, is knowing how much and when. And the same thing goes with any other uh, effect, articulation, for instance. And that is one of the things that will really strike you in the Concertgebouw recordings here, is the way that Mengelberg got his orchestra to articulate the way he wanted to. It's not like really any other musician... Uh, on the podium in terms of those results. So uh, it itself uh, is a, a way of ex exerting control. And Mengelberg was nothing if not desiring as much control as he could get. Bowing, for instance. You can bow freely, and then you can bow uh, fingered. He wanted fingered bowing. And Furtwängler wanted free bowing. So did Stokowski. So these are things that you recognize in the performance of these conductors. But right now our focus is Mengelberg. Well, I mentioned this, uh, and I haven't gotten to the second term yet, but I mentioned this because these are audible characteristics of, this, of these performances. You will be, if you know the music, uh, most of the works that we have recorded by Mengelberg are relatively well known. Uh, you may be taken aback uh, by this slide effect 
that you never heard before, but I want to put this in context. Uh, the second term is rubato, which is even more controversial. Uh, it is also older uh, than portamento. Uh, and it essentially uh, is a, a strange Italian word. It means robbed. Um, you're, you're, what you're doing here is being more flexible intermittently with a thematic line uh, to uh, create a, a certain emotional effect, a certain aesthetic character to the music. And that means that music may be inflexive in places you don't expect it to be, uh, and it may strike you as uh, if you look through a score and you're saying, well, you know, what, what, there's no tempo change here. What am I doing? Uh, what, I mean, what am I hearing? Uh, it's because this was a practice that was considered, if the conductor had skill in it, uh, to enhance the expression of the music. Uh, and you hear a lot of that as well. So you have this interesting combination between the actual way of, of, of playing the notes, as it were, in changing from one pitch to another. And then you have the way of playing phrases that don't set a new tempo. What they do is they just make a variation uh, to be more expressive. It's always been my sense that music can't exist without rubato. Uh, and I think there are, because it's a, it's a natural thing to do within the character of, of a melody. Uh, if it were to be played perfectly straight in one pace uh, by some metronomic device, uh, you wouldn't, I suspect you wouldn't like it. Uh, it wouldn't have a, any kind of character to it. Well, the other thing is, of course, rubato is very much a part of uh, certain styles of uh, piano music in the Romantic era. But the kind of multi-tempo approach is relates to tempo, not to metrical games, which rubato is. Uh, you rob one note to pay back another. Uh, because if you read Wagner, he talks about the melos that change from one part of the score to the next, and he believed that one tempo was right and you modified the overall tempo of a movement so that you brought these characteristic elements out so that when you get somebody that says, that says allegro, and that's all it is, is allegro. Well, there are a thousand different ways to articulate an allegro. It's your taste, it's your skill that decides whether it's a successful or an unsuccessful use of the technique. I wanted to ask Lou, um, so what do we make of a score when the composer writes, actually writes rubato in it? Does this mean just more rubato than you would normally add? Well, I think in Mahler's case, and he, he of course, there are German word, phrases that are used uh, more often than rubato, uh, such as Zeitlatzen, uh, to let free, which is, again, in, in the robbing, it's a little different approach. But uh, I think that what, to answer your question, a composer, especially in the late 19th and, God forbid, in the early 20th century, but it's happened, uh, may feel that he needs to instruct the conductor because um, there's a concern that things are changing uh, in terms of, of, of the character of the art of conducting. Um, and he wanted to make sure that the conductor didn't feel constrained 
to maintain uh, at this particular place more than elsewhere a strict tempo, uh, even if he doesn't use the, he doesn't need the word uh, to implicitly indicate that because the music does in that particular place that he marks the term. He wants to advise the conductor. Yeah, he, this is a place that you can feel free to express yourself. Mm-hmm. Mahler's scores and, and the New Vienna School scores uh, are very, very detailed. These are, look like conductor scores to me when I follow them, whereas Brahms and Bruckner have very few tempo changes throughout. And I'm, I'm, I'm just assuming that they felt that Conductors are going to make these changes on their own, so why should I put uh, uh, something? Why should I put markings in that they might not like? Um, well, especially because Brahms was older and and more used to what uh, what happens. But I'm not quite sure that. Well, I, I mean, this is unfair to say, but I would suggest that while any music comports to a, some kind of freedom of expression. Uh, if you compare Mahler's scores with Brahms, Mahler almost invites it uh, because of the constant changes in, in thematic material, dramatic character. Uh, there's almost a, a necessity to change an impulse uh, uh, to bring out the contrasts uh, beyond tinkering with the score so much that every time there's some place that the composer thought would be natural, uh, he feels so insecure that he won't, he won't rely on nature and he wants to say something. Whereas conductors can also ignore what the composer has painstakingly written. I always remember the late Stanislav Skrovachevsky uh, we were recording the uh, suite from the miraculous Mandarin of Bartok, and there's a slide, a very definite slide in the score. And Stan looked at it and he said, "That's cheap," and he didn't do it, of course. So uh, it. Bulez uh, was this way too sometimes. The same, uh, the same impulse. Uh, you're either helping, or, and so he thought he was helping by taking, by ignoring this cheap slide. Uh, posterity will choose between uh, his in idea about it and Bartok's idea. But uh, the other thing, I to wrap this up, because we're going to I start with a piece by Brahms, and this is going to exemplify certain things. Uh, but uh, Mengelberg was born in 1871. That means he was 26 years old when Brahms, the last year of Brahms' life. He'd heard plenty of performances he may never have met him, but he certainly had a good idea of how it went. And he takes the academic festival overture of Brahms. It is not pop concert music, but it certainly is not quite as serious as some of his symphonies. And he just turns it into an extraordinary experience. And you can hear the... You can hear the... Uh, the strings and the clarinet at the beginning, uh, the mystery that these passages sum up in his reading that just go by perfunctorily in other people's readings. They wait for the, the whatever the big tune is. And then the retard, the gorgeous retard, before Gaudeamus Igitur is heard at the end of the overture. These are hallmarks of Mengelbergian style. 
And, of course, the performance is um, superbly played and beautifully recorded. So we should uh, actually play some music now. So let's listen to this 1930 recording of the Academic Festival Overture of Johannes Brahms. This is the Amsterdam Concertgebouw Orchestra under the direction of Willem Mengelberg.
We opened the program musically uh, with our first excerpt of uh, a recording with the Amsterdam Concertgebouw under our conductor of the day, Willem Mengelberg, of Brahms Academic Festival Overture, uh, which was performed in 19 and recorded, I guess, in 1930. We go on now uh, to a, a different example, but yet an example that is in a similar genre, if you will. A little earlier, here is Schubert, uh, one who was influential in, in Brahms' oeuvre. Uh, and the ballet music number two uh, from the incidental music for the ballet Rosamund. Uh, this is a 1938 uh, recording, uh, and you will hear... Uh, much portamento uh, and uh, slight retards between themes, which are a little more, uh, how should I say, obsessive than you would generally hear uh, them to be amongst today's conductors. Uh, some might feel that Mengelberg overdoes it uh, to an extent, uh, and this is a an issue that can be taken up for the rest of the program uh, because it, it is very personal uh, how much uh, to, to, to slow down for a moment, for a split second and to affect a phrase. Uh, that's very personal. There is no, no answer to that question. For those who think that there might be neither the score nor in, I think, most likelihood the composer would have told us. Well, how do you how, how do you balance the faux naïf pages of this little ballet music with the Lendler-like jollier uh, pages? And that's really what the piece is all about. He does he does it seems to me inflate it just a bit beyond its um, likely proportions. But it again it's an example of orchestral virtuosity. This comes from a short. Con uh, relationship that uh, the orchestra and Mengelberg had with the Decca Record Company in England in the mid-30s, which is how some of these recordings have been reissued by Decca. Uh, anyway, uh, this is enough to give you an idea of his way with Rosamunda. 
Well, that's interesting because I found it surprisingly straightforward. I've never seen the score, and I just felt it just sounded so natural in its in the retards, in the uh, in in the rubato. Um, I so you guys okay. That's what makes a horse race. Yeah. So let's listen to the uh, second ballet suite from Rosamunda by Franz Schubert. The Amsterdam Concertgebouw again, directed by Willem Mengelberg. Thank you. 
That was uh, the ballet music number two from uh, the ballet uh, of Schubert, Rosamunda. Uh, it was a 1938 recording of uh, the Amsterdam Concertgebouw directed by Willem Mengelberg. We're now going to go back yet again in time to Bach uh, and first uh, the orchestral suite number two in B minor, the overture to it, uh, which is a 1931 performance uh, by Mangelberg with the Concertgebouw. Uh, so let's listen.
That was the orchestral suite number two in B minor, the overture to it by Bach, performed by the Concertgebouw of Amsterdam, directed by Willem Mengelberg. That performance is a lovely memento of how the last century played the orchestral works of Bach. A very legato style, not terribly lively tempos, but in this case perfectly just ones, and uh, not too much playing around with tempo. Uh, the retards were a little romantic, but uh, a little too much train coming into the station. 
We don't do that anymore, although it's amazing how some people haven't gotten over the habit even today. Anyway, the flute solo, I cannot remember the name of the principal, and I've fallen down on my research, I apologize, but that's one of the distinguishing features of that performance. The fact that we do still do that occasionally, uh, around, around 1970, uh, Stokowski uh, recorded uh, the Four Seasons for DECA Phase 4, and boy, oh boy, if you want to hear a train coming into the station, <laughs> it's just unbelievable. I love it. De gustibus non est disputandum. <laughs> now, the next work of Bach is part of Mengelberg's time, a very special time in Amsterdam. He instituted the annual performance on Palm Sunday of the St. Matthew Passion of Johann Sebastian Bach, and he did it in 1899. So it continued uh, right up until the beginning of the war. We're going to listen to just two excerpts, because that's all we have time for. We're going to hear two that follow right from one to another. First is a recitative. This features the great tenor Karl Erb, who was the evangelist in countless performances of this work all over Europe, and particularly in Amsterdam. The recit in German is Und da sie den Lobgesang gesprochen hatten, which means, and after they had sung their praises. That will be followed by number 21, a chorale, Erkenne mich mein Hütter, which is basically, open up to me, my governor, uh, something like that. Karl Erb is a very distinctive tenor. It's no one that ever did the evangelist better than he did. And in the choral singing in this performance, you will hear a majesty that is rarely, rarely equaled today. It may not be stylistic by certain people's standards, but it is, from a musical point of view, profoundly moving. So let's listen to these excerpts from Bach's St. Matthew Passion, as recorded on Palm Sunday, 1939, by the Concertgebouw Orchestra and Willem Mengelberg. <laughs>
those two excerpts from the St. Matthew Passion of J.S. Bach were recorded on Palm Sunday, 1939, in the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam with the Concertgebouw Orchestra and the choir and Willem Mengelberg conducting the evangelist. That remarkable performance was by tenor Karl Erb. We move ahead to Beethoven now, the scherzo of his Eroica, Symphony Number no. 3. And this is the first of the recordings we're going to feature um, from the New York Philharmonic, uh, which Mengelberg led for about nine years until uh, until Toscanini uh, o- overcame him uh, uh, in his style of conducting. 1922 to 1928, to be exact. Mengelberg was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra simultaneously with his uh, conducting in Amsterdam. He came to the orchestra in 1922, and he departed in 1928. From 1926, he shared the podium with Arturo Toscanini. That was not a match made in heaven. Toscanini's biographer, Harvey Sachs, has uh, said that Mengelberg and Toscanini clashed over interpretative questions and even rehearsal techniques, creating division among the musicians that eventually resulted in Mengelberg's departure and Toscanini's supremacy. It's interesting that uh, Mahler had a similar problem with Toscanini when he first came to New York, uh, which is a long story I won't... uh, We'll save for another time. This recording was made in 1930, by which time, of course, Mengelberg had left the New York Philharmonic, but... Uh, it was made in Liederkranz Hall in New York City, a now demolished site. Uh, if people wanted to do pilgrimages, they could look up the address in an old city directory and walk and see what's not there anymore, which is Liederkranz Hall. Anyway, what distinguishes the, this recording besides Mengelberg's uh, rather vigorous performance is the fact that this is one of the first recordings from this what we still would call an early electrical period that has an exposition repeat in the first movement. Every other recording of uh, uh, the Eroica, I think with the exception of Sir Henry Wood in the New Queen's Hall Orchestra on Columbia, cut the exposition repeat, which was common practice on records in particular and often in performance. They were going to listen to the scherzo, and uh, I leave it to you to sit back, relax, and enjoy this document from 1930.
We've just heard the scherzo from Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica. Uh, this time, the New York Philharmonic performed under Mengelberg's direction in 1930. Uh, I, I just want to make a simple comment. I, I was surprised at how drastically Mengelberg sped up the tempo at the end of the movement. And forgetting about whether uh, there's any direction to do so, that you know, I, I think in Mengelberg's case, as Dennis pointed out so well, um, that may not really have mattered to him. But uh, it was something that didn't seem quite in keeping with the rest of the performance, as I as I saw it. This comes, by the way, from a set the New York Philharmonic just released to celebrate its 175th anniversary which is concomitant with the 175th anniversary of the Vienna Philharmonic. And um, there are something like 65 CDs of Philharmonic recordings on this set. Uh, and uh, I was very happy to see that there were Mengelberg recordings um, because uh, usually when the... Uh, the uh, usually when the uh, companies do this, they put just the newest recordings on there. But they also had two by Josef Stransky who succeeded Mahler, and somebody asked, well, are you getting as much as Mahler got? And they, he said, no. He said, I am not Mahler. And eventually, uh, Oscar Levant once wrote that Stransky's limitations were boundless. Eventually, he, <laughs> uh, he accepted uh, the idea that maybe he shouldn't be on the podium, and he went into the interior decoration business. That has nothing to do with Mengelberg, of course, because... He hadn't even come to New York. But. He was the quintessential interior decorator of music <laughs> in a certain respect. There's a film of the audience in the Concertgebouw for a performance of the Schubert Unfinished Symphony. It has immense atmosphere, uh, and I wanted to include the sound of the orchestra. This is not the same source as the film, but will give you the same idea of the mystery and the sense of something terribly important, but not in any kind of a portentous way, that fell over the audience uh, in, that, in that film. And you will hear some of it, too, in this performance. Yeah. I recall uh, in my, my own radio days, Dennis had his, uh, that I uh, took the first movement of this a symphony as so famous as it is because I assume most people would know it but it, it, it has that dramatic middle section uh, and I played three recordings of it back to back uh, n none of which were the Mengelberg because I don't think at that time this is many many years ago I either knew of it or had a copy of it uh, pity because it would have fit within the notion that I was trying to, to generate which was that you have a wide berth of interpretive difference in approaches to this movement entirely and particularly to how that middle section should be played. Uh, from, as I recall, Ferdwangler in one case, uh, Savalish in another, but I'm afraid the, the, the weakest link is not the one I remember. Uh, but it would, be, it would have been an interesting thing to follow because... Uh, you'll know right away which class Mengelberg would, would uh, be readily characterized in. And so let's listen to the first movement of the 
B minor uh, symphony number eight by Schubert. Again, we're back to the uh, Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, directed by its famous conductor, Willem Engelberg.
from 1942. Uh, that was the first movement, of course, of Schubert's ever-popular Unfinished Symphony, number eight. Uh, I, I mention also, beside the comments I made earlier, that you could now hear uh, the substantial amount of portamento that's that's uh, inflected into the music, uh, which indicates really the conservative nature of Mengelberg. Although he was just, he was straddling an era that would disaffect uh, this uh, this important uh, interpretive technical element in performance, uh, but there are a lot of hesitations as well. Some even to the point of true retards uh, between themes, which was also uh, a very accepted and traditional way in the 19th century of approaching a second, uh, you know, be, uh, closing a first subject and approaching a second subject. There'd be a slight retard and then movement into either the same tempo or a new tempo for the second subject. We're going to go on now back to Beethoven with another scherzo, uh, this one from the Seventh Symphony, recorded in 1940. Uh, you'll hear some very interesting inflections in this performance as well.
just heard the scherzo from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony uh, in a 1940 performance by the Amsterdam Concertgebouw Orchestra directed by Willem Engelberg. We're going to go back to 1928 for our next selection. This is the Oberon Overture of Karl Maria von Weber. Today we have at least one complete recording of the opera, but when this was recorded, the chances of hearing a performance of Oberon were about next to nothing. So the overture and uh, to this opera and many of other uh, many of Weber's other operas survived basically in their overtures, and they became staples of the concert repertoire. In this performance, you will hear all of the ways in which the moods expressed in the overture are given full value in this performance with the triumphal conclusion with the trombones blazing away. It's just a remarkable record, and I hope you will uh, find it as much that as everyone who's ever heard it.
just heard the Oberon Overture in a 1928 recording of Weber's Overture to the Opera Oberon. Uh, again, the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, directed by Willem Mengelberg. Let's stay with the year 1928, but bounce across the pond to New York again. We're going to listen to a tone poem of Camille Saint-Saëns, L'Oreille d'Omphale, or Omphale's Spinning Wheel. This was a piece that used to turn up regularly on concert programs. Today, it's very rarely heard except on records. But it's a beautiful piece, the diaphanous string playing of the Philharmonic at the beginning and the end. is quite, uh, quite impressive, and you will also, if you listen on headphones, hear the rumble of the BMT subway underneath Carnegie Hall in the uh, second half of the piece. That was uh, something that plagued recording engineers and is one of the reasons that venue has uh, fallen from favor, not to mention the expense. Anyway, this is uh, the way it used to sound. Well, just a uh, by way of some more history of this piece in performance, uh, it, like so many other classical works, or at least part of it, uh, became the focus uh, of uh, a radio program, uh, the theme song for a radio program, initially transcribed for organ, later actually played by the or- an orchestra. Uh, and the program, for those of you who have a memory uh, that goes back into the 40s, The Shadow. Uh, it was this very mysterious segment, almost chilling, uh, that was taken from the overture with with such an innocuous title uh, in, in contrast to what, what the myth is about that's being uh, characterized in the piece uh, and used for this very interesting program. I, I mentioned also that uh, we played uh, the transcription uh, of that portion of this overture in one of our buried treasure programs uh, where we were, which is called Nostalgia, and where we were uh, concentrating on all of the radio programs uh, in the 30s, 40s, and early 50s uh, that used classical music in their episodes or as their themes. Street and Smith Publications here in New York uh, were the uh, originators of many of these pulp magazines, and they immediately saw that they could stimulate sales by putting dramatizations on the radio, and so they did from the 30s through the 50s. And this minor section of Dauphin was the only part of it that's not otherwise rather light-spirited. But, of course, you needed something in the minor mode to go with who knows what 
evil lurks in the hearts of men. A shadow, shadow knows. <laughs> <laughs> and that 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 was Orson Welles who started it out too, yes, it which was. is another useless piece of information. But well, thought I'd share it with you. So let's listen then to the entire Omphala's Spinning Wheel by Sasson uh, in this performance from 1928 with the New York Philharmonic, directed by Willem Engelberg.
I had to put in this miraculous performance of Franz von Zuppe's Poet and Peasant. It uh, simply is the best of all recorded versions. It's all it needs, all you need to be said. It treats this old chestnut with all the respect it deserves, and it is glorified thereby. Also, another composer, not just Peace, uh, who's been who was very popular, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, Hyde Park, is it Hyde Park, the band shell? In Hyde Park? I can't remember which park. Sure. Well, I think it's Hyde Park. One in Central uh, Park, too. Is there one? Well, yes, but I suspect more in Hyde Park. You'd invariably hear this uh, or one of Suppe's uh, overtures uh, other than this. Uh, but uh, in 1932, that would have definitely been the case. The only one you would have heard otherwise would have been the light cavalry. Right, right. Well, or morning and noon and night in Vienna, or such long titles like that. But in any event, uh, let's listen to it now. Uh, again, it's the Concert Cabal directed by Mengelberg. <laughs>
Paula Mengelberg conducting the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam in that performance of Zuppe's Poet and Peasant from 1932. We bounce back two years to 1930 for Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet Overture Fantasy. I first bought an LP reissue of this when I was 12 years old, and it was not well done in some ways, but the power of the performance just grabbed me and has never left. Uh, Mengelberg used to say in Tchaikovsky, everything is a little exaggerated, and you can hear it in here, but what he doesn't do is interfere with the work's phrasal tension or the excitement that is generated with no pandering, really. He knows how to retard and then a tempo. This is something a lot of concertgoers never hear properly executed. So despite the less than perfect uh, speed stability of the original matrices, we can just sit and listen to how the strings articulate and listen again to the portamento Lou mentioned earlier when you come to the big love theme. Uh, and uh, uh, it is a piece that requires no apology when you hear it performed like this. Now, I have a different point of view. I listen to this with my wife, who is very... She, do, she doesn't like historical performances very much because of the surface noise and all that. Um, but we came to the love music... Uh, the final statement of the love music after uh, after the, uh, the fight. And it's going along okay, and all of a sudden he does something that stops her. She says, why did he do that? What to elicit exactly that response yeah, from the concert goal. Uh -huh. I was thinking about this very thing. Uh, audiences who were brought up in the, very, in the somewhat strict, comparatively strict um, rule that the piece quote, goes a certain way, and that's the only way, uh, and it goes in accordance with what is on the printed page, if you know what that is, <laughs> if you experience music that way. Uh, and they're, they're, they're shocked when they hear something different. Uh, and yet the irony is that our whole program is devoted to the notion of interpreting music, not necessarily only deciding what allegro means in this piece uh, or what forte means in this section of the piece, uh, but a whole host of variables to try to bring out what the conductor thought either the composer, quote, meant, unquote, by it expressively, or what he thinks it might mean other than what the composer thought if we know what that was. I've been trying to get Peggy to to f understand, not understand this, because she's a good musician, and and but she just obviously had her recording at home, and all of a sudden there's this very different rubato that Mengelberg indulges in, and she was just she said this is very strange. Yeah, and that's wonderful. I mean that this is the the wonderment of music, that uh, music is not a one a one-dimensional thing. It, 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 it almost forces you, if you take it the way you should, to keep it going. You, it forces to, you to open your mind not and your spirit to other... It's kind of like having a conversation with a person. Uh, a 
in speech there is such inflection and the meaning of what is said is changed immeasurably by that difference in inflection. As opposed uh, to reading something. Well, even reading. You know, we all don't read at the same speed. We all don't concentrate on the same kinds of passages in, in reading. Uh, and there's a whole host of variables. Th this is the element of communication which art concentrates on. I mean, it's the most important aspect of it because, for me, it's the element of our art, music, that keeps it alive. If it's certainly, if we could take Romeo and Juliet and put it in a machine with all the notes and all the things, and they, they actually had definitions that a me some mechanical device could determine, and we'd come out with the word we hate to use, definitive performance yeah. of the piece, uh, it, it would kill music. Music would die with it. Because even if you, if you agreed that that, in fact, was definitive, then why hear it again? I've You're not going to get turned on by the same exact thing. That doesn't, that's not what really does it with the magic of music. The magic of music is truly when you're, you're forced to experience something else, something, an approach very much like a different kind of person, because it is just that, uh, and not just the conductor, but the performers. Back in college, I, I played for a girlfriend the opening of the Mahler Sixth, first with Barbaroli and then with Bernstein as examples of how music can be played so differently. And, and she was shocked. She couldn't believe it was the same piece. So let's listen to the Romeo and Juliet uh, Overture Fantasy from 1930 performance uh, by Mengelberg with the Concertgebouw Orchestra, music of Tchaikovsky. Thank you. 
Lilla Mengelberg conducting the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam in the Overture Fantasy, Romeo and Juliet by Piotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. When I have heard that piece, and there are some other pieces on this list, we like to avoid the word definitive. And yet, just in terms of effect, posterity has, to some extent, dubbed many of Mengelberg's performances definitive, just because they've reached a level of uh, communication, I guess I'll use that tired old word, that uh, is rarely, rarely equaled. Now, the next recording is a piece that just really exists only on recordings. Tell me the last time you've been in a concert hall and heard a conductor try and shape In the Steps of Central Asia by Alexander Borodin. It's just not done. First of all, with the rehearsal time available to modern orchestras, they can't take the time to spend on it. But the beautiful arch shape, and then, of course, you have that plaintive cor anglais solo that supposedly imparts the exotic uh, Asiatic atmosphere of this otherwise very Slavic picture of the immense steppes of Russia. Uh, This recording was made in 1941, and again is what some people would call light music, but Mengelberg creates exactly the right atmosphere over its duration. So let's listen then uh, to In the Steps of Central Asia by Alexander Borodin, a 1941 performance by Willem Mengelberg with the Concertgebouw Orchestra. Thank you. 
We opened this survey with Brahms, and we're going to close with the finale of his Symphony Number no. 3. This is a 1932 recording. Of course, that by that time, 1932, the Depression had uh, reached all over the world, and recording companies were, shall we say, not doing very much and not doing very well. But fortunately, record buyers in Europe and in Japan uh, responded to records more than Americans. By this time, in the United States, you would not have seen a recording of a Brahms symphony simply because the radio had taken over so many people's interests to such an extent. However, Mengelberg and the Konzertgebel performed this in the Konzertgebel in 1932, and it was recorded by English Columbia and released all over the world. It is not, this is not the movement perhaps where you might find some of his really exceptional supercharged performance. This is an evanescent movement, one of those wonderful movements that Brahms wrote where you're not quite sure where you are some of the time. But it's very eloquent and it's very much worth listening to. We could listen to the whole symphony, but we can't actually, so we'll listen to this much of it. This is the Finale marked Allegro un poco sostenuto from the Symphony Number no. 3 of Johannes Brahms. <laughs>
We just heard the finale from Brahms' third symphony, Finale Allegro, Un Poco Sostenuto. I, um, I would imagine throughout this discussion, everyone understands who's listening, that Mengelberg could perform a piece one way and at another time another way. And um, the recording he made in the studio with a concertgebouw uh, is a very famous one um, and uh, a very great one. Um, I have a CD, however, from 1944 in which he performs the Third Symphony. And I just thought it might be amusing to uh, read uh, a sentence from the notes that I took at the time. And it reads, the third, This third is the kind of vacillating performance in, that I detest. Stop and go, without a strong line, interlarded with distended cadences and over-heavy emphases. Those comments uh, of Sedge's relate to a fact that Mengelberg was described as a despotic personality, and that quality in him grew stronger as he grew older. And sometimes there was just an element of willfulness that was hard to justify in some of his later performances. That one was made only a year before he effectively stopped conducting. He could have gone on, but the point is that it comes late in his career. It's not the end, because in 42 he made impressive recordings, but it does show another side uh, that we're, we're playing his best records, uh, in our opinion, uh, to, that, to that point. But there are shades in any conductor's career that are going to show him stronger or less so. And so with that comment, we conclude part one of our investigation into the performing talents and conducting skills of our, our late, great Willem Mengelberg. Uh, and we'll continue next time with uh, several other performances of his, some of which I think will be quite astounding. And until then, this has been Lou Smoley. Dennis Rooney. Cedric Clark. For interpreting classical music. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.